0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Robert Adams back to the program. His latest series, Around the House, goes on view at San Francisco's Frankel Gallery today and will be on view through April 23rd. His latest book, also titled Around the House, is available through both Frankel and Amazon. Adams is among America's greatest examiners of the West. He's published over 60 books, earned a MacArthur Genius Grant and a Guggenheim, and he's also won numerous international awards. His most recent retrospective was organized by the Yale University Art Gallery and traveled around the world between 2011 and 2014. This is Adam's second visit to the Man Podcast. He was previously a guest in 2012. We'll have a link to that program and images of all the pictures we discuss on manpodcast.com. One quick note before we start, I'm pretty lousy at telling new listeners how to find the show, so here we go. We're available via iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, as well as via RSS. If you enjoy the program, please consider giving us a five-star rating on one of those services as the more and better ratings we get, the easier it is for art lovers who are new to podcasts to find the program. Thanks. Robert Adams, after the break. Blaffer Art Museum is the exclusive North American venue for Mirrors for Princes, an evolving five-city exhibition of installations and sculpture by the art collective Slavs and Tatars. The show takes its title and conceptual framework from a medieval genre of advice literature for rulers that offered instructions, aphorisms, and reflections on how to rule a nation. See Slavs and Tatars' Mirrors for Princes, free January 16th through March 19th at Blaffer. More at blafferartmuseum.org. A Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty Collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents Anne-Veronica Janssen's, the Belgian artist's first solo museum exhibition in the U.S. Called A Master of Light by the Wall Street Journal, visitors can experience Janssen's multi-sensory work, including walking through the work Blue, Red, and Yellow, a freestanding pavilion in the garden featuring artificial fog radiantly suffused with the primary colors of its exterior walls. Anne-Veronica Janssen's currently on view through April 17, 2016. For more information, visit Nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. And we're back. Robert Adams, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. When we talked in 2012 on the occasion of your retrospective, which at that point was at the Yale University Art Gallery, you said that the exhibition and the related book project revealed that the thread that connects your work is very generally a search for home. The new book and the new show are, are titled Around the House, and that's what the pictures show. So does this body of work and this project come out of the experience of working on, on that kind of retrospective summation of your career style project? It
1: uh, reminds me a little bit of Buster Keaton's uh, Wisecrack when somebody asked him to comment on his own work, and he said, I don't feel qualified to talk about my own work. <laughs> the book actually, I I assume, follows concerns that have been with me lifelong, although the actual beginning of the book was by accident, oh. by unexpected gift from where, I don't know. Almost all the projects, actually, had begun with a, a picture or pictures that I didn't expect. And in this case, uh, my wife and I were, were having supper uh, at, at the end of June, a couple of years ago, three years ago, at our kitchen table, and which is next to a window looking out northward toward the Columbia River. And as we had supper, we could see a sky. A uh, sky taking shape that neither of us had ever seen before, it just became more and more remarkable. And After about 20 minutes, I couldn't stand it any longer and I I set down my fork and went in the other room and grabbed the icon and went out on the back porch and worked for about an hour and a half photographing the clouds and uh, oddly, about four days later, exactly the same kind of sky appeared. I had never seen it before i haven 't seen it since, and I got the film developed and made some prints, and I thought, you know that's so remarkable that this gift was there right where we lived uh, i don't uh, because of some health limitations uh, I don't travel much even even here locally, but suddenly it seemed to me that there probably were other things to discover right. At home. He, it's, it's the more odd because uh, although Stieglitz was an, er, an early inspiration for me and remains so, I love his work. It's always seemed to me that the weakest project that he pursued were, were the pictures of clouds by themselves. And so for many years, I've pledged publicly and privately to anybody who would listen that I did not want to take pictures of clouds. <laughs> But it's a good reminder because, of course, as I say, you get surprised, and oftentimes those are the useful surprises. Those pictures were the beginning of this little book around the house, the, the picture of clouds, which are toward the end of the book.
0: Yeah, in fact, there are there are kind of clouds throughout the book. I don't know if they were all taken on the same day. but
1: Not entirely, no, no. It, uh, it encouraged me to uh, broaden my perspective a little bit and uh, not go by the rules that I had set up.
0: So you've spoken in the past of your photographic series often having a gift photograph a, a photograph that kind of instigated the series or that taught you that a certain body of work could be or should be a series, so those cloud pictures are the gift photos they really here?
1: are yeah yeah i as i say i I think I'm even in print saying that i I thought taking pictures of clouds was a was a waste of time. All I can say is that these were irresistible and, at least in a few cases, seemed worth including in a project.
0: So the series includes pictures of the inside of your house, the outside of your house, your garden, your woodworking shop, your dark room, some still lifes. We'll have some images of some of the works we'll discuss on manpodcast.com. But I, I say all that to wonder if the book has an intentionally sequential structure, kind of maybe even through the course of one day, because the picture, the the book doesn't quite start with morning, although it starts with maybe some morning like things, but it certainly ends with night.
1: Yeah, the book is structured to go through, it it actually, as I've indicated, isn't all taken in one day, but uh, it is taken pretty much in one season and it begins, most of the pictures at the beginning of the book are actually early in the morning. And then, as you say, it ends at night and then begins again at the the very end. You get some morning pictures again. So very often the the other books that I've done are sequenced either in terms of time of day or season, and the same is true here.
0: Any particular reason you wanted to do this book that way?
1: I mean, the, the book is about nature in a way. And one of the great coherencies of nature is, is the, the cycle of, of days. I, I can't explain except that that's the, that's the way we all order our experience, really, getting up and going to bed.
0: There are a lot of ways here that the book is about nature, but about nature in ways that maybe somebody familiar with your oeuvre or, or I don't know, anyone else might not think of as being nature. So, for example, there is a picture of a a birding poster. There is a, a picture of maybe maybe your dark room or office of a poster from the Metropolitan Museum of Art exhibition, American Paradise, The World of the Hudson River School. Those two pictures kind of really stood out to me as being anchoring isn't the word, but as being references to the outdoors, but pictures made in the indoors. Are those two pictures related? Is there something in particular those two pictures are are about? The
1: pictures, I think one of the pictures you're referring to is a picture actually of a door that leads to our basement, but it's covered with with uh, small pictures that relate to living beings, whether they're four-footed or two-footed or have wings. Schultz and I are active animal protection folks. And we love animals. Some of the greatest experiences of our lives have been encountering them. So it's very much a part of our day to think about animals. The other poster you talk about is very important to me and and I think just overwhelming in its power. It's a a poster from a show, I think, back in the 1980s, maybe, uh, at the Met. And the picture is by Worthington Whitridge in Colorado, in a place that was no more than 15 miles or so from where we lived and could, for all the world, have been a mile away from where we lived, in a great cottonwood grove along a stream that comes out of the mountains. Whitridge got the light of Colorado exactly right. Nobody has done it better. So American Paradise for me, they, he really nailed it on, on that. So that's been above my, that table that that poster is above is, is uh, my my packing table and dry mounting table and so on. So that that's a scene that I enjoy thinking about whenever I work.
0: I'm glad you brought up light. The first time we talked in 2012, one of the the great things about that conversation to me is the way in which you talked about light and the difference between Oregon light and Colorado light and how you work with light. Much of this book, although not not all of it, but much of this book is shot indoors. How is shooting inside and maybe especially in your own home different than shooting outside?
1: slower and in some ways it's it's more peaceful you don't have to think about having to possibly talk to anybody who comes by but the the, the best shooting inside is using natural light that, that comes in from outside so the pictures of uh as you know uh, there are two or three pictures in the book uh, the surgeons which every year up until this past year, anyway, uh, my wife has arranged in an alto vase. Those are uh, those become just just lovely as the light comes in. Our living room has light coming in from the south, and then we have windows looking out to the north. So we have light that comes through the room, and as it strikes objects in the room, it brings them alive. One of the great problems in living in the Northwest frankly is if you if you were raised in the Southwest is to custom yourself to working with uh, gosh I don't know what to call it less light perhaps uh, certainly half the year is, is gray here but light is still important I often remark in some frustration that the light here is a little bit as though somebody's fooling with a rheostat all the time. It, it just goes gradually up and down instead of, you know, instead of feeling electricity sort of arcing across the sky. You, you have this numberless shades of marine light here on the coast. So it's a different kind of, of uh, thing to work with and, and has its own pleasures. And occasionally, I have to admit, it also leaves me, Deeply homesick for the
0: Southwest. It's interesting you mentioned those nasturtiums. The the picture we were talking about a moment ago of the Hudson River School Metropolitan Exhibition poster is right before three photographs of nasturtiums in that alto face. And the nasturtium pictures are really gripping. I mean, you know, you can only do so much to compose what nasturtiums want to do on their own. But the geometry and everything else about those pictures is is really captivating. So I guess the obvious question is, why did you want to photograph nasturtiums in an alto vase?
1: It's hard to answer. But if, if the two most unarguable facts of life are suffering and beauty, a house, I think, should be designed to and maintained and developed to, to to mitigate the one and to reinforce the other. It should be protective, it should be beautiful and provide places for the contemplation of beautiful objects and and encourage contact with whatever beauty is comforting in the surrounding landscape. Nasturtiums, we have a bed of them right outside the front door and until this year when when we unfortunately have been visited by a young doe every day and she loves nasturtiums so she's absolutely cleaned us out but the nasturtiums outside and inside are are sometimes one of the main defenses against against learning the latest from donald trump or or uh, you know what other offense the world has to offer
0: So there are a number of pictures of nasturtiums in in the project. There are also a lot of pictures of your wood carving work that you have maybe most often referred to as, quote, just fooling around. But it makes me, you know, those, your woodworking and the picture of your woodworking shop feature prominently enough in this series of pictures that I kind of, I don't know, it seems to suggest that they're more than just fooling around. Why was it important to photograph not just that work in C2 in your house, but the space in which you make it.
1: I love both photography and, and working with wood, and and the, sort of the the principle upon which this little book is built is is that it's it's uh, places, objects, activities that I love, and so they they qualified. Woodworking, in many respects, I am just fooling around. But it's—you're right—it's very satisfying in certain ways. And you'll see all through the house if you visit what we laughingly refer to as the three bees: boats, books, and birds. Uh, all three of which are carved.
0: All three of which are in the book, I might add.
1: Oh, I I'd forgot about the. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's true. Woodworking is is. Fun too, because unlike photography, it's it's slower and, in a sense, more pleasurably physical. I don't use electric tools; just some old hand tools, a couple of which belong to my grandfather and then to my father. And there's a there's a wonderful calm at the workbench. It even it even smells good, unlike stop bath and hypo. It's it's a healing place and a healing activity for me. And uh, obviously the, the subjects, boats, books, and birds, are ones that, that I love and love to look at, watch, and celebrate to whatever extent like, my skills allow.
0: One of the great moments in a picture in the book is the carving of a bird that sits on top of the clamp in your woodworking studio on the bench. Do you know the one I'm talking about yeah,
1: I do, and as I say throughout the house you'll find you'll find birds insofar far as I'm able to to bring them off i've had i have to admit in the last couple of years I've done less of it because of failing vision I lost vision in most of it in one eye, and the loss of of, of a sense of depth is is really in the way for doing close work, but uh as I say, it's 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 been a continuing part of, of the enjoyment of life.
0: Does that loss of vision affect you as a photographer?
1: Mercifully it has not in terms of well, I say mercifully because the the eye that no longer has a center to it, the vision part is gone in the center. That's my left eye and so I photograph using my right eye. It has made darker work slower. Yeah. And I think part of it's just age. Seeing uh, seeing the illuminated dial of the uh, dials on the timers, for example, and uh, similar low-light activities so is is harder as you get old. But uh, I'm still doing it, and probably I'll have to rest the, <laughs> the whole thing away from <laughs> me before it's done. Uh,
0: so, continuing with some of the things that recur in this body of work, there are a number of still lifes. There's a picture, say, of of tomatoes on a tabletop with a very traditional linen, uh, striped, stripe bordered linen. I don't know on the tabletop, and there's a really terrific still life of a half of a mantelpiece with a beautiful branch from something that might have washed up on the beach down below your house, a carved bird, and what I'm going to guess, and will probably embarrass myself by so doing, is hydrangeas in an alto vase? Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very close. Thank you. That's was very kind of you. <laughs> so there are some still lifes in your oeuvre going going back to, say, the mid two, early to mid-2000s. Do you think of these as being still lifes that you've composed, or are they more things you've noticed and captured?
1: Insofar as the the, the things, for example, on the mantle above our fireplace, I didn't compose them for the photograph, but I'm careful about what goes where. We live; the house is very, very small. It's less than a thousand square feet. But the one room that that keeps us focused and happiest is the living room. And we try to keep things, I I don't know how to say it, just set in the right place. And and, uh, they're changed with care almost every day, something in the room will be changed. So when I went to photograph in that room, uh, it was set up and ready to go in many ways.
0: There are a lot of pictures here of your backyard. You have been photographing your your backyard for many years sometimes in Actually, the...
1: uh Tyler, I should I should uh, uh clarify that the the yard part is actually the front yard. We have all oh, the backyard. We're sort of perched on the edge of a, of a bluff and we have a, a a back deck facing out over the the river. And, uh, but the other is what separates the house. The house is set back a little bit from the street. And what yard we have is that little little front yard.
0: And I'm, I may be wrong on this next part, too, but I, I think you photographed it before occasionally, even from the point of view of your dog. That's true. That's true.
1: Yeah. We know, at last, we no longer have a dog. But, uh, yeah, I used to uh, photograph our, our uh, West Island Terrier out there, just as I did in Colorado.
0: So the, the, the photographs of the yard really function as the outdoor pictures here, the the with one or two exceptions, the most kind of outdoorsy what we might expect Bob Adams pictures in, in the series. And I think the thing that strikes me most about them is that they are all pictures with, with with a border, with an ending, and that ending is, you know, the trees and the shrubs that come up at the edge of the yard. Was the way that Space was defined by shrubs and trees around the edges of the property, if you will. Interesting or important?
1: It's it's interesting and important as a as an aspect of the way we we live. And I suppose the pictures reflect that. Uh, the, the as I mentioned earlier, it seems to me that the the reason the reason houses are important or, or even apartments. Is their sense of sanctuary, and, and uh, sometimes that's achieved by a sense of enclosure. And uh, our front yard is, is has bushes along all three sides of it, and that is that is really important. I think so I, I I think that's the that's why it's why it was important to me to give that sense if I did in the in the pictures because that. That is why one loves a house. I I spent a lot of time in Colorado photographing new tracts, and many of the scenes were were deeply beautiful because of the light and the the sky and the lay of the land. But the houses themselves often betrayed a troubling sense of fragility and vulnerability and... The people rarely came out of those houses to enjoy their, their what little ground they owned around them. And I think all of that is part of why I now value so highly this sense of enclosure even in this little house we have.
0: These last two groupings of pictures we've been talking about, the yard and the, the still lifes and flowers, I kind of grouped together because they remind me of, of painting. The yard pictures remind me of Pierre Bernard's paintings of, of his yard and, and the landscapes around where he often painted, where he encloses space with dense foliage and trees. Yeah,
1: I love Bernard. He's great. He was also a great photographer, as you know.
0: Yes, he was. Many uh, Hundreds of them at the Musée d'Orsay uh, in their collection. So we so I, I guess to go through a couple of painting questions, do you think about Bernard before you or as you are walking through your yard with your camera, or is that just so ingrained in you that you don't have to think about it? How does that relationship work
1: i I don't think i I have ever been conscious of it as I worked, but painters have been for a long long time very very important to me, and i i you know my heroes are the heroes that many of us share, Piero, Rembrandt, Goya, Cezanne, Winslow Homer, Matisse, Birchfield, Hopper. I think if anybody, if anybody has gotten close to really being with me right while I worked, it was probably Hopper.
0: You mean in this series or in general? In general.
1: Uh, I think, you know, he's the towering figure in our, in our country's art history, I think. So a lot of days for me have been rescued by consulting art books. Uh, we obviously live a long way from museums, uh, but uh, art books are open around the house all the time, and the pages are turned almost every day. Something like Bernard is just, it, it, their, their work is very, very important. But I think, in terms of actually how how I went to work, is, is the one that occasionally this. I think it's strangely enough. I think it's the sky that often uh, I'll be looking at sky here, and I, it must be that we get some some weather that's related to, to Cape Cod and the rest. If the clouds often nudge me, and I think Hopper oh, sky. I'm sure that that enters into photography I do
0: here. My guest is Robert Adams. We'll be right back after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative machine-inspired Art Deco style, featuring 14 cars and 3 motorcycles along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculpted in steel for more. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Data. On view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Data is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to Wexarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Robert Adams. Your generation of photographers is the American generation of photographers that has most intensely engaged with painting and painters. Maybe the most prominent example thereof is the late great Lewis Baltz, who many of whose early series were. About taking paintings and, and riffing on individual paintings, you don't come from an art school background. you were an English professor did you have you ever been aware of being i don 't know unusually free to to engage that other medium that there weren't there weren't rules you had to follow that you, that, that you could do that
1: I, I think I knew Lewis a little bit and I owe him. My 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 opportunity to work really. He was the one who arranged for the f- first three photographs of mine ever to go on a gallery wall. Where was that? That was at a place called the Jack Glenn Gallery down in Newport in uh, California. And it was a rather brief opportunity. Within about uh, three months, I got a notice that the uh, I think it was not more than three months that the. The, the prints were up for auction and uh, the gallery had closed and, and the California law as it was then written meant that if you had stuff on consignment, it all, all went to, to uh, pay out of bankruptcy. But uh, anyway, to, to get back to your question, I have a feeling that, uh, and I, I don't want to speak for Lewis because obviously he's not with us to clarify his own views, but I have a feeling that his his relationship to art was uh, other forms of art was different than mine I began in as an undergraduate to be really interested in figures like Goya and others but Lewis I have uh, I remember in one when, when I went out there to share this exhibit with uh, Lewis and Anthony Hernandez and others I remember at one point we passed the uh, Los Angeles County Museum and I I said, you know, can we stop? I've never been in there. Can I, I'd i like to see what that is. And Lewis said something the effect that he didn't, it was fine, they would stop and I could go in, but he didn't want to go in because he didn't much like museums. I have a feeling, and I never talked it through with Lewis, but I have a feeling that his interest in art of previous uh, epochs was not nearly as strong as his interest in what was going on in the so-called art world right around him and i don't know as i say my my own to be honest about this my own how should i put this i i feel quite ill at ease with what i see going on in the art world around me not much in art forum lifts the spirit for me and really great figures like jasper johns for example and others that have followed in his uh, steps seem to me to have asked too little of themselves in terms of substance and scope. And and people like that are certainly not embarrassing in the same way that Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst are, but the art world as it's currently before us, it seems to me to be mostly the other side of capitalism as a religion, namely a mixture of presumption and vulgarity and cruelty and vacuity. So art as a long-term thing is very, very important to me, but I'm not convinced that that it's always uh, a profitable area of focus. And right now it seems to me to be a, an era that's that's
0: troubling. What What you just said is exactly why I chose to spend years writing about the 19th century. <laughs> I can believe it. I can
1: believe it. And I I should also add to that, that there very definitely are people now who are doing important work. For example, there's a young man who introduced himself here not too long ago, by the name of Brian Schutmott, who has published a compelling elegy for the American West, entitled Graze the Mountain Sands. And there's, uh, I think, also of I mean, there are many, but I'm, I'm just giving you an example or two. Uh, Mitch Epstein, for example, recently published a really an extraordinary book, uh, Pictures of Trees in New York City.
0: He came onto the show to talk about that. We'll have a link to it.
1: It's just, you know, it's a, it's a major achievement. So it isn't as though we're living in a place or in an age that doesn't have things to, worthy of finding. and negotiating your life by. But but it's they're a minority and they're, they're having to work super hard to
0: survive. I'd like to ask one more question about the yard pictures before moving on from them. One of the things I noticed about them is that they seem to be really free of scale. It's often hard to tell if you're showing us something intimate or something much larger. And there's kind of a temptation for me to read into that a certain Emersonian delight in nature and delight in the thing, whether it's large or small. Was scale important to you in those pictures or playing with scale important to you in those pictures? I I don't think i thought
1: of it in quite that way. Uh, I agree with a lot of Emerson, but I have to admit that I haven't read him in a long time. His friend and neighbor is uh, (laughs) the person I often hear and read. But yes, it, it does seem to me that some of the same reconciling truths are visible, both at small scale and large scale. There's a, there's a little stone that I keep uh, on my desk that is as mysterious as the clouds are. So yeah, I, I certainly agree with what you're, what you're saying.
0: To To move on to another recurring subject, if you will, in the book there are a lot of pictures of your darkroom. And and that got me thinking, you know, painters have been painting their studios for, you know, hundreds of years, but photographers don't make a lot of pictures of their darkrooms. So why did you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting. The, the original edit of the book was uh, included one, as I say, because it's a place that I'm happy and I enjoy and have for now for nearly 50 years. So it, it fit the requirements of the book. But when he saw it, my, my longtime friend and gallerist, Jeff Frankel, suggested he said, why don't you include a couple more? And so I went back and worked some more, and uh, so they are a total of about three now.
0: Three plus one of a of a file cabinet, a steel cabinet of pictures.
1: That's true. There is one of, of flat files. That actually is
0: up yeah, in the living weird. room. Not quite your dark room, but sort of related-ish.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's it's for better or worse, profession is throughout the house. And really, we, Sherston and I, take, try to take every once in a while well, a rest. But many months go by they are pretty much seven day a week
0: focus on on the profession. So that makes it sound like you only included the darkroom pictures because they were around the house so to speak, but still you took them. Was there something you wanted us to see or, or think about or recognize or...
1: Yeah, I think there's I've had a couple of friends who have responded by saying, "Oh, your dark room is cleaner than ours." <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> it's I, really clean.
1: I don't know if that's true or not, but it is kept simple. And uh, on the walls are some things that, because you spend a lot of time standing doing rather monotonous things, I find that it helps to have important things on the wall, even in the dark room when you turn the light on so there are there are, there's there's an announcement on the wall for example from that uh, first show at the Jack Lent Gallery in, in California there, there are there are pictures photographed on the wall taken by a friend who was at that time photographing in Alaska but he came down to Colorado and took a picture south of the south of Rocky Flats, Colorado, where I'd been photographing, and he sent me a colored photograph which I very much enjoy and treasure of that same place, basically where I'd worked. but he did it differently so uh, I guess I just wanted to say that this is a room that's 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 related to everything else in the house, really.
0: You know, I noticed in my notes, I had some more notes about clouds. We talked about them earlier, and and you mentioned not wanting to do a, a Stieglitzian or constable-like, I guess, picture of, of just clouds. There are, however, cloudscapes in many of your books, uh, perfect times, perfect places from 88 to make it home, photographs of the American West from the next year, time passes a couple of years after that. And so those are Pictures in which there is a horizon line, and we see both the land and the clouds. The sky is there too, but they're pictures of land and clouds mostly.
1: Which makes all the difference, really. I mean, you know, it's when Steinitz, music one, for example, when he brings in the house, the little tiny house, and the, and the horizon line, somehow the, the whole picture changes.
0: No, that's. I mean, that that, that kind of points to exactly what I, w- I wanted to ask about. There's a picture in in time passes and this is probably slightly unfair, but there's a picture in time passes of a cloud that makes up 95 or 97% of the picture, and there is the faintest sliver of Columbia River at the bottom of the picture. It's maybe 3 or 4 or 5% of the area of the whole picture. And having heard what you said earlier, and then hearing the reference to the Stieglitz you just made, it almost sounds like that picture is a realization of the then importance of keeping something else in the picture, of of grounding it in some other way.
1: Yeah, I, I, it absolutely is, and and it was Stieglitz who both taught me what I wanted to avoid, but also, as you know, occasionally he nicked in a tree or or whatever, and and it 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 was a completely different thing, it seemed to me, and so that that was the key to how to, the sky, of course, is. I mean, if you. If you don't pay attention to the sky, you're missing one of the great great blessings and joys of life, so you want to pay attention but but it's it's just a little a little empty by itself.
0: One of the last pictures in the book is of a Michael Brophy painting of a clear cut on your mantle. One of your greatest, most urgent bodies of work is about clear cutting in in the American West, especially Oregon. It's one of my favorite things on earth, the body of work, not clear cutting. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly don't need a, a painting of, of that thing in your house to have an engagement with the practice of clear cutting. You've walked it, you've lived it, you like me are personally horrified by it, and it's touched your life in awful ways that we talked about back in 2012. This is all a long, probably overdramatic way of asking why that painting, why is that painting on your mantelpiece and why photograph it and include it in the book?
1: actually you couldn't be sure of this from the picture but it's actually hanging above a bookcase michael is i believe a a remarkable painter uh he's committed his life to this place and the medium and uh, you know it's it's impossible ever to say why a picture is important to one really but he opens my eyes again and again both to what is wrong and to what is beyond damage and I, I love a lot about that picture, the, the power of this ruined stump, the, the misty light far back at the edge of the clear cut, which is absolutely accurate to, to the to standing at such a place. You're right, of course, I've photographed places like that. I did it for several years. But there are many, many truths to find and to re-find and he helps me do that. I guess I also have to admit that it's also encouraging to be reminded that one is not alone in finding significance in places like that. Photography is fundamentally a pretty isolating activity as painting is, I think, for many. So it helps to be, to, the word community is now way over visited, but, just a sense that there are other individuals out there who care a lot about what's happening it helps you to helps you to find your own courage
0: It's a picture that, for me, and this is probably only for me, is related to the picture in the book of the cargo ships on the other side of a porch or a wooden fence, cargo ships out in the columbia river
1: yeah that's the that's the back uh, back porch.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're both pictures of the outside world coming in in a, in a really acute way. And yeah, that's how they work for me.
1: Thank you. Uh, that's interesting that, that that you find that in, in the picture with the ships in the distance, because I've forgotten if we mentioned this in 2012, but this town is currently, I uh, say currently it's been under threat for now 11 years from a turning into a liquefied natural gas port and uh, the town of 10,000 people has spent countless thousands of hours and dollars trying to fight off this big corporate attack so shipping is uh, so we've, we still haven't uh, managed to defend ourselves against the LNG port and in the interim while trying to do that we're now looking at attempts to bring Oil from the Bakken oil fields in the Dakotas down out through this river mouth, as well as coal to ship to China. So it's a never ending uh, struggle. And those ships suggest that, as well as many other things, of course.
0: Those ships, at least to me, remind me that these are photographs of the West. And there are a couple other places in, in this body of work that remind me that we're in the West, the American West. but. You know, maybe all things considered, of all of your non-made-in-Sweden projects, you made a project in Sweden in in 1968, this is the the body of work that is maybe the least about engaging the landscape of the West. And that, well, first of all, is that fair, I guess?
1: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I spent about six weeks, uh, interestingly, on the upper end of Long Island, which I found a really remarkable place. And there are a few pictures kicking around from that experience, but
0: yeah, basically, sure. So you're, a, you're a, an, an almost lifelong Westerner. You grew up in New Jersey, and you've spent your entire professional photographic and artistic career making work about the West. It, it, kind of looking back, is the West a specific thing in place with which you wanted to engage, or was it what was there, what was where you were?
1: The West as a distinct place, composed of distinct places, is enormously important to me. As my wife would tell you, I love it so much that sometimes I can hardly stand not being in specific locations, or to realize that many of them are now destroyed. I know that Native Americans have a special history, but often I I feel so, similarly disinherited. It's a, it's a, I don't want to get emotional about this, but it's a, it's a driving pain that's based in affection and traceable to, to numberless one and only places to, frankly, to specific trees, to specific dry washes, to light of specific hours and seasons. The world, I'm, I, I'm sure, is full of wonderful places. But for me, the West is the most wonderful.
0: So obviously, we've been talking about these pictures of your home in Oregon. I don't know if we've explicitly said it's in northwest Oregon or not, but it is. You, back in the 1970s, made, and we referenced them obliquely a, a little while ago, you made many, many, many pictures of houses in Colorado not necessarily yours of course but of the process of Colorado being you know papered over with plywood houses when you walk around your house and your yard with a camera do you engage with consciously that previous body of work or those previous bodies of works about about homes about houses is there a relationship there
1: not that i think of in quite that specific a way but when we lived in Colorado, we lived in—I've lived in—I'd have to think, but I think three different tract houses of varying epochs, and that is—that's a part of 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 what I worry about for the nation. And that experience informs my own appreciation of this place we're in right now. That as I. Mentioned, it's a tiny house, but it was built in uh, 1941, prior to the big suburban buildout that now is visible across the country. And we, of course, we live in a a town that's about 10,000 people, so we're very privileged. Uh, The town, I should add, is now seemingly on the verge of undergoing very serious alteration, but. When, when I remember what it's like to live in a tract house, I remember, for example, the house—the first house we lived in in Longmont, Colorado. I remember telling Sharston a week or two after we, we'd gotten in and we realized how thin the walls were, I said, you know, I could drive an axe through the side of the house with one swing. And so that sense of... of uh, exposure and exploitation, being exploited by developers and the inhumane nature of the whole arrangement of it, of the the laying out of the town even, those feelings are, are, I'm sure, what led us to move here 20 years ago to a town that, at least for the the past couple of decades, has, has remained small. And the house, although small, is and plain is is reasonably quiet. And, and many of the things that that worried me in Colorado, we tried to address when we came here. I'm not sure that I can entirely defend the the I don't know what was it cowardice maybe I suppose that made us want to get out, but. Obviously, we all need to figure out how to, to to make towns and cities more more comforting to people.
0: Just to kind of tie that up, the house you live in now is not a tract era house. It is a, a pre-tract era house. It was built, I think, in 1941. Yeah. So you avoided that whole period form thing altogether.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there were you know there there were many developments here even at that time, and certainly there there are now. This is it's becoming a, a tourist destination, and with it, many problems are arising, and, and we're not, uh, frankly, uh, sure we're going to stay here for a variety of reasons.
0: Before I shift into the last group of questions I want to ask, I have one totally out of place question that I'd like to ask simply kind of because I can. In 1994, you did a book called Listening to the River. And in many of those pictures, you did something you'd almost never done before or since, and that is shooting directly into the sun. A lot of the Listening to the River pictures have the sun in the upper third of, of the pictures. Why?
1: That book is very, very close to the bone. That book is truer to the experience of walking in Colorado than anything I've done uh, otherwise. I don't know. Have you have you been have you walked around at all in Colorado?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, a lot. <laughs> Quite. I mean, mountains and flats both.
1: So. You're good, great. Well, you you know what I'm going to say then. It's the, the off, uh is reported to have said that that. There isn't any place else with light like that, except in central Russia, and uh, I've known people who couldn't stand it. Um, The wife of uh, a good friend uh, who was my boss for a year when I worked as an editor, she was raised in uh, Minnesota, and I would come into their house and all the blinds would be drawn, and it was just something There was too much electricity in the air. So for that, for for the book you mentioned, I used a wide-angle lens which I had gotten by accident. Actually, I would never have gone out and bought it myself, but because I had given a lens that I no longer used to a friend, (laughs) he said, "Well, let me let me give you something in return." So he gave me a 28 millimeter lens, quite a wide angle, and suddenly I realized there was something I could do with that lens that I had hadn't achieved any other way. And so often, the sun was just right there in the picture. It required some some learning how to process the film and expose for it. But that book, I, I'm i happier about that book than almost any other I've done.
0: I don't mean to suggest this is what you were doing with the book, but one of the things about that book and that project that is important, amazing, valuable, I don't know what the word is to me, is that, you know, American photographers of landscape have typically not shot into the sun at first in the 1850s and 60s, for obvious reasons. But one of the ways American painters, Bierstadt and Church in 59, 60, 61, 2, 3 respond to the emergence of photography is they start making paintings, not luminous paintings, but paintings, looking into the sun. Bierstadt does this a lot in Yosemite Valley, and there was lots of competition, Carlton Watkins especially, for Yosemite Valley, Valley imagery in the 1860s. And that body of work of yours, the Listening to the River Book, seems to me to really kind of reclaim a thing or to claim a thing for photography, to to say, we can do that too and connote a particular actual physical experience by doing it rather than just doing it because the photographers in the 1860s couldn't. I think of that body of work every time I'm at the Yale University Art Gallery, and when you walk into their new American galleries, the first painting you see is a Bierstadt of Yosemite Valley, where I think it's an 1863 painting. I could be wrong on that, where Bierstadt paints the sun. And so as you approach those Yale American galleries, there's a Bierstadt sun just booming out at you.
1: Oh, interesting. I've I've not even though my uh, paint or my pictures are archived at Yale, I've not been back. So I I, I wish I had. But anyway, that tells me something. I I, uh, I now wish more than ever that I'd been there.
0: In conclusion, I'm fascinated, completely fascinated by the work artists make and the decisions they make near the end of their careers. You're closer to the end of your career than than you are to to the mid 1960s when you started out.
1: That's very very gen- gently put. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, yeah. Is there an artist or two, or maybe a writer or two, whose late career work interests you, and about which you think?
1: You mean a, a visual artist or a writer? As you as you. I'm, 78, so uh, as you get up in there, you begin to notice the other folks who are your age, and you begin to pay uh, special attention, and I'm becoming convinced that there's a there's a lot being written by all by, uh, older people at this moment. I just read a book of poems by Clive Bell about getting old. He's very sick, but uh, which is moving. My own favorite writers now are Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson and both have quite a lot to say about about getting old in visual arts that's a, that's a that's a tough one I obviously I, I do pay attention to to those people remaining roughly my age and it's I, I sometimes marvel actually that people I don't know how to put this without seeming to compliment myself, which I don't want to do because I don't feel any particular virtue in it. But there, there is something about continuing to work after about age 70 because you 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 know that that whatever you do, you're not gonna you're not gonna somehow get an accurate assessment of it. Uh, people are concentrated on earlier work, and it's going to be. Years before anybody you're not going to get another voice that you trust to be accurate about what you've done you may you may be doing something that's not not worthy of you but I think about for example, I think about Bill Brandt uh taking all those nudes uh, late in life. It was really a really a remarkable sort of uh, hell for leather uh, uh move on his part, and I think of course about the late uh, Stieglitz pictures in New York which are just, just powerful in a way that they have no, no competition, the, the uh, city pictures. But, uh, and I also, well, yeah, I could go on and on. Uh, I think uh, Emmett Gallen's uh, pictures, they're, they're not qu- quite current, but they're quite recent. The picture, I think he's going to emerge as, as maybe the greatest aerial photographer ever. And the pictures that he took down near the uh, nuclear weapons testing uh, area in Nevada, I think, are going to be around as long as there's a world. They're, they're enormous achievements and an, and an act of, of great vigor and, and commitment. Uh, just, just breathtaking.
0: How do you think your work is different at 78 than it was at 38?
1: Did I? Did I? I already quoted Buster Keaton, didn't I?
0: <laughs> but you can do it again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love Keaton; he's so, so funny, and and uh, also such a great artist. But uh, again, he said, "I don't feel qualified to talk about my own work." <laughs> so I, I, I think I've stayed with some of the same themes, but I do think it's important to keep trying to change the way you talk about it, otherwise there's no point in doing it. Right now, we're we're still working, attempting simultaneously to to do several things. Uh, I've just finished the last very small collection of written pieces to be entitled Duchamp was wrong, and uh, to be as as annoying as possible, of course. And... uh, (laughs) I've also, I've just finished the last, what I think will probably be a last photographic monograph, which is uh, entitled Tenancy, T-E-N-A-N-C-Y, which is the, the, the temporary possession of what belongs to another. And we're also at work with Joshua Chuang and uh, Gerhard Stein on substantially changed new editions of four titles. So there's lots going on, but I, you know, the the issues seem to me to have remained somewhat the same. Business of art is ultimately beauty, but to get there you can't be a liar, and that means you have to face a bunch of things that are tough to look at, and. I suppose I'm just an old man now saying this, but it seems to me that some of these problems have only gotten worse in my lifetime. The thought of of Donald Trump with his hand on a nuclear trigger is about as frightening as any thought I think anybody could have or could have had in the last century. So the problems are the same. The, The work is still challenging, interesting, enjoyable in some ways, but it's, it's still around the same themes.
0: Robert Adams, thank you so much for, for the work this hour. Just thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.